listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 13. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from, Naz- came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dick, for that reading. So last week, we kicked off a brand new teaching series, um, The Gospel According to Mark. Uh, If you weren't here last Sunday, I want to encourage you to go on our website and uh, check out what you missed. We covered a lot of introductory material. Uh, We talked a little bit about uh, who Mark is, what a gospel is, why we're reading this particular gospel. So definitely uh, check that out. In terms of review, though, um, we're already seeing some things in the scripture reading Dick just shared with us that we talked about last week. Uh, We talked about how Mark's gospel is really fast-paced. He moves from here to there to there. Um, Mark is throwing a lot of stuff at us in very few words. In today's scripture reading, we got the ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness all in about 10 verses, like 10 sentences. That is breakneck speed compared to other Gospels. To show you what I'm talking about, um, here's our entire reading for today on one slide. I know it's too small to read. That's okay. I'm not going to make anyone read it. I just want to help us get a sense of scope. This is, again, John the Baptist, baptism of Jesus, and the temptation of Jesus according to Mark. Here is Matthew's version of the exact same story. A bit of a difference, right? Yeah, Matthew has a lot more to say. He moves a little bit slower. Um, Last week, we also talked about how Mark was probably the first gospel to be written. Um, We talked about how the other gospel writers borrowed from Mark, right? Um, After the service last Sunday, someone actually challenged me on that. Uh, It was my wife, Erin. We got home, um, and she was like, um, how do we actually know that the other gospel writers borrowed from Mark and not the other way around. If we find stuff that's word for word the same across the gospels, how do we know who wrote it first? 
It's a really good question, you guys. My wife is, my wife is smart, <laughs> really smart. Um, so to just like appease the curiosity of anyone who was maybe wondering the same thing um, and to prove to Aaron that I was right, um, let me show you, let me show you why, one example of why we think Mark came first, okay? Um, this next slide is the baptism of Jesus according to Mark. It's like the middle of what we just read. Here's Matthew's version right next to it, which of course, longer. And then let's take everything these two versions have in common and turn it blue. Can you see that okay? The blue stuff is what, if you go back to the Greek, is word for word the same or pretty close to it. What do you notice? Any observations? You can talk if you want. There's a lot that's blue, right? Almost Mark's entire passage is blue, right? There's like two or three words that aren't also in Matthew. We can actually take Mark's text and we can like spread it out and you can see where there's some additional material in Matthew. Now, it is absolutely possible that Mark took Matthew's text and just cut it down a bit, shortened it, but usually the stuff that the other gospel writers include is stuff that helps flesh out Mark's story. Extra details, helpful little insights, little bits of additional information that make it kind of easier to follow and understand. So it makes a lot of sense that Matthew and Luke and the other gospel writers would have taken Mark and added to it. It makes less sense that Mark would have taken their stuff and cut out all the helpful details. Um, that's one reason. Another, and we don't have a slide for this, but like, um, oh, go back. <clears throat> you also get the baptism story in John and in Luke. And we find the same thing. We find the same stuff from Mark popping up in, these, in the other Gospels with just different elements added into it by the different Gospel writers. There's the extra stuff Matthew tells us, the extra stuff Mark, uh, Luke tells us, the extra stuff John tells us, but the thing that kind of ties it all together is Mark. That's why we think Mark came first. Does that make sense, Aaron? <laughs> we'll just go with it. She's going to be mad at me. No. I did ask her permission for that. Um, all right, uh, enough of like the nerdy textual analysis stuff. Let's actually have a sermon today. Does that sound like a plan? Um, those of you who are timing me, you can start, start your watches now. Um, let's go back. Let's reorient ourselves um, by rereading the first part of our passage. Um, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. This will be on the screen. <clears throat> John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A few years ago, um, I was hanging out with some people that I didn't know very well, um, and we got on the topic of religion, and I shared that I'm a Baptist, which, which is always kind of an iffy thing to let people know. Um, but the, one of the people I was talking to was like, oh, Baptists, do you guys worship John the Baptist? And I was like, no, actually, we worship his cousin. You get it. It was over their head. That's Jesus. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. But anyway, um, so I'm assuming 
in this room some knowledge of John the Baptist. You might not know all the details, but like, I'm assuming some familiarity with this guy. If, if you've read any of the Gospels, if you've, if you've been to church around Christmas, or if you've seen a Jesus movie, you've probably seen John the Baptist at some point. Um, he was this wild-eyed, hellfire and brimstone preacher who lived in the wilderness. I think I've got a picture. This is, uh, this is not, you know, historically it's an actor. But here's John the Baptist. Um, he grew his hair really long. Um, he wore animal skins. He ate bugs. Um, he really got on the nerves of the political and religious establishment of his day. So, like, you know, our kind of guy. Um, have, you, have you ever heard the saying, I'm going to have your head on a silver platter? Anyone ever hear that before? John the Baptist is where that comes from. That actually happened to John. Um, so, a little bit later in the story, King Herod is going to kill John and serve his head literally on a silver platter platter at a banquet because it's the Old Testament that's violent, right? Um, that's where that saying comes from, though, kind of a dark origin for that. John the Baptist is usually remembered as the herald of Jesus. He was on the scene first, doing his thing, doing his ministry, getting people ready for Jesus. Um, and I've read this story a million times across the different Gospels, but something stood out to me this week that I never really thought about before, and it's the geography of it all. John is in the wilderness, basically in the, the desert, doing his thing right next to the Jordan River, and the text tells us that people are coming from Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside to see John in the wilderness. So the gospel begins, Mark's story of Jesus begins by telling us that people are leaving Jerusalem and going out into the wilderness in search of salvation. That is completely backwards, if you know the story. The wilderness is dangerous. You don't look for salvation in the wilderness. The wilderness means no food, no water, and no shelter. You're completely exposed. You don't leave Jerusalem and go to the wilderness. It's the other way around. Think about the Exodus story. God's people wandering through the wilderness for 40 years trying to get where? to Jerusalem, right? Throughout the story of the Old Testament, whenever there's like a sacred holiday or a festival, when there's a war or some kind of threat coming, the people always go to Jerusalem, not the wilderness. Jerusalem is safety. It's where God lives. It's where the temple is located. If you're looking for refuge, if you're searching for shelter, uh, enlightenment, uh, salvation, you don't go to the wilderness, you find it in Jerusalem. But the gospel begins, and it tells us that the people are leaving Jerusalem to find salvation in the wilderness. Which brings up a question. How messed up are things in Jerusalem, right? Anyone else reading this and like wondering that? Like, how bad did things have to get in the temple that people are going out in the wilderness seeking salvation from this guy? A little um, information about the religious system of the first century might be helpful. Um, this will probably come as no surprise, but the religious establishment in Jesus' day was super corrupt. 
The Jews were living at the time under the occupation of Rome. They were an occupied people, so you're talking um, no rights, no freedoms, no ability to chart their own course and self-govern. If you step out of line at all, the Romans will clamp down violently. All the people had was their temple, their faith. That's the closest to, like, self-determination they could get. Rome might be in charge, Rome might be running the show, but at least we've got a temple that's run by our own people. Except that the high priest and most of the temple leadership were appointed by the Romans. They were Jews, but they were selected by Rome. They were Roman sympathizers. The Sadducees, who we'll meet a little bit later in the story, they are collaborating with Rome. So you've got a religious establishment that's in bed with the established order, the people in power, the occupiers. The priests are working with Rome to keep the people in line, and in exchange for their efforts, they're getting rich. Because, see, the Romans collected a lot of taxes, Back then, if you were under occupation, up to half of your income could go to pay taxes in Rome, and the Romans were more than happy to share that wealth with local leaders who would help maintain order. If anyone rocked the boat, started making a little bit too much noise, the temple authorities would squash it, and if they couldn't quiet it down, they would just quietly arrest the person and hand them over to the Romans and let Rome deal with them. That's foreshadowing, by the way. In a system like this, it's no wonder that people are leaving Jerusalem to find salvation and forgiveness in the wilderness. We often lament, complain maybe is a better word, that the church doesn't hold the position in society that it used to, right? Like, I hear this from, from clergy colleagues all the time, talking about how, like, pastors used to be respected. We used to be revered. It used to mean something. The church is losing a generation. We used to have all this power, all this authority, and now it's just falling away. And we're really good at finding things to blame, right? Like, we'll blame uh, secularization, the schools. Uh, maybe it's the demise of the family, uh, maybe it's sports. Maybe millennials are the problem, right? These young people just don't value community and faith like the rest of us, like previous generations. What if the reality is that things have gotten so bad in the church that people are looking for salvation in the wilderness? What if the problem is us? What if it's people like me? What if Christians have so missed the mark with our culture wars and our scandals, our efforts to gain power and control? What if the religious establishment has made such a mess of things that you now have an entire generation that's searching for God in the wilderness? See, I know a few millennials, believe it or not. <laughs> um, you know, most of my closest friends. Um, I even know some folks in Gen Z, like 20-somethings and younger, and I'll tell you what, um, they have the same spiritual longings and questions as the rest of us. The people who are missing from church on a given Sunday are just as interested in God as the rest of us. They're just as curious, they're just as hungry for community, for connection. 
Um, they're struggling. They're feeling alone and isolated. There's a struggle to keep up with social media and technology and all the demands of modern life. Um, they want to give back to their community and make an impact. It's just that the church is probably the last place they'd look to do that. And so they're searching for answers in the wilderness. I think the first lesson that we can take from the story of John the Baptist is that those who are searching for God in the wilderness might not be lost. Not all who wander are lost. Sometimes, sometimes, the people we worry about because we don't see them in church, sometimes they're not here because they're looking for God elsewhere. But there's a second lesson that's equally important that we have to hold in tension with this one. And it's that not everyone preaching salvation in the wilderness is worth following. There are a lot of people out there offering salvation who are just as corrupt, whose promises are just as empty as some of the worst examples in the church. I think of the motivational speaker who is like preaching self-empowerment while lining their pockets. Um... Or like the podcast host who's telling people to take horse deworming medicine to prevent COVID when there's a perfectly good vaccine. I think of someone like Joshua Harris. Do we have his picture up here? Yeah, Josh Harris. The name Joshua Harris doesn't mean anything to like 90% of you, I know. Um, But for people my age who grew up in church, this guy has probably caused more harm, inflicted more trauma than like anyone alive. Back in 1997, when I was 12 years old, um, and just discovering the terrifying world of teen dating, Josh Harris published a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Anyone ever hear of this book? It's like, none of us. I love it. I love this church. Okay. No one knows it. Alicia knows it. Yeah, it's us. We were messed up by it. So, um, Josh Harris wasn't even married, okay? But he wrote this book where the message is basically if you want to have a good Christian marriage, you shouldn't be dating. We shouldn't allow teenagers to date. Because, you know, dating could lead to kissing, which could lead to sex, and sex could lead to dancing, and it just, it just snowballs from there. No, no, he didn't actually say that. But this book, this book helped kick off Uh, the purity culture movement of the late 90s and early 2000s, where you had um, youth pastors and parents, mostly well-meaning, driving home all sorts of um, destructive, repressive ideas about sex and relationships with young people. You had children. You had preteens. People who didn't even know what a hormone was yet, making pledges in front of their church to God that they wouldn't have sex until they were married. And then, of course, once you broke that pledge, that meant you were broken. You let God down. I was 11 years old when I made that pledge. And I was about 16 when I let God down. You had LGBTQ kids um, being, uh, being sent to these camps, summer camps that would try to turn them straight. Um, You had young women and girls being told that they needed to cover up their bodies so they didn't cause their Christian brothers to stumble. All this toxic stuff. His book helped jumpstart that. 
Josh Harris went on to pastor a megachurch for about 15 years or so. Um, after that, he went to seminary after being a pastor and a best-selling author, which is interesting. Um, and then about two years ago, he announced that he was leaving his wife and leaving the faith. He kissed Christianity goodbye um, and became an atheist. And I bring up Josh Harris because a few weeks ago, a little less than a month ago, um, he made news again because he's launching an online course that Christians can take to help them come out of the faith. For just $300, he will walk you through unlearning all the stuff he's been peddling for 20 years. The guy who wrote a book on relationships before he was married, pastored a church before he went to seminary, um, and has been an atheist for all about 18 months, he's now selling the antidote to his own poison. Not everyone preaching salvation in the wilderness is worth following. The only thing that keeps John the Baptist from becoming toxic is the fact that he's pointing people to Jesus and not to himself. If you take Jesus out of the equation, John the Baptist is no different from any uh, huckster, cult leader, or kind of like new agey guru type. That's actually an easy way to tell if someone preaching salvation actually has anything to offer. Are they pointing people to Jesus or are they pointing people to themselves? If they're pointing to themselves, that's not salvation. We've had a number of people show up at this church um, like in the last year, year and a half, uh, who have been hurt by other churches at some point. Spiritual refugees who are kind of going through their own time in the wilderness. I've had about a half dozen people tell me one-on-one -on -one that this church might be their last shot. That um, if it doesn't work this time, they might be done with Christianity. That's a huge burden to bear, you guys. That burden's too big for, like, any church. And I take that very seriously. But if we're going to have anything to offer these folks, if we're going to have anything to offer the spiritual refugees who come through our doors, it's going to be by pointing them to Christ, not to ourselves. Thank you. We have to point them to Jesus. It can't be about our music or our preaching. It can't be about me or Pastor Alicia or how awesome this church is, as true as that might be. It's an awesome church. But we have to point them to Christ. That's all we have to offer. We have to embody the love of Jesus as best we can to make this church a healthy place for those who are in the wilderness. If someone is preaching salvation, but all they have to offer is themselves, that's not salvation. That's a scam. We have to point them to Christ. So one more lesson I want to drive home. Let's read the rest of the passage first, though. Uh, Mark 1, <clears throat> we're going to start in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. 
He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. We have quite a contrast in this passage. You've got the baptism of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness, but the way Mark just shoves the two together is a bit jarring. Jesus comes forward to be baptized by John. It's like the quintessential mountaintop experience, right? The heavens literally open. The Spirit descends as a, God, as a dove. You get the voice of God declaring blessing. And then that same Spirit sends Jesus further into the wilderness. Jesus gets baptized, then he's sent into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. I think sometimes we assume that while you might spend a season in the wilderness, you might have like a spiritual dry spell or a dark night of the soul, but eventually you grow out of that. That's what we assume. Eventually that comes to an end. Um, You come back home, you return to church, you've attained maturity, holiness, enlightenment, whatever we want to call it, and the wilderness period ends. But sometimes... Sometimes in order to be faithful, the Spirit will actually drive us further into the wilderness. That's our third lesson. I remember when I got baptized, I was only nine years old, um, so I wasn't really dealing with that much heavy stuff yet. Um, But I remember at the time, I thought I'd arrived. Like, this is it. I'm nine. I'm getting baptized. I figured it out. I said the magic prayer. My family's proud of me. Like, that was it. I was at the top of the world. Um, I remember my grandmother, um, who lived all the way up in Malone in the North Country. She drove all the way down to Allentown, Pennsylvania, just to see me get baptized. That's how big of a deal it was. She was Catholic, so I was still going to hell, but at least I'd be baptized, right? Um, But I thought that was it. I'd arrived. Spiritual struggles over. Questioning over. I couldn't have been more wrong. Nowadays, I'll often warn people uh, before they get baptized just to watch out. Just be careful. Anticipate some struggles. Now that you're taking this step, now that you're making this uh, public declaration that you want to follow Jesus, be on the lookout. This is when the struggles are going to come. Sign up for Brockport Baptist Basics to learn more. <laughs> Little plug. <laughs> Jesus got baptized and he ended up spending 40 days in the wilderness without food, going toe to toe with the devil. If you avoid that, consider it a win. <laughs> I don't know what the wilderness period might look like for you. I don't know how being faithful to God might impact you and send you further into the wilderness. It could mean um, that you have to have some really hard conversations. Maybe you have to repair some relationships in your life. It could mean setting some boundaries, making some distinctions. We've talked about that before. Um, Figuring out what uh, behavior, what relationships are healthy and which are not. Um, It could look like coming to terms with your biases. Examining the ways that you're still enslaved by the powers and authorities of our world. Or it could mean acknowledging that one thing you've been in denial about for years, and I know how terrifying that can be. 
I also don't know what the wilderness period is going to look like for our church. Like if we remain faithful to God's call on our ministry here in Brockport. I don't know what it's going to look like. Um, It could look like taking some really uncomfortable stances around issues of justice. It could look like thinking more about how our church could tackle things like poverty and inequality. It could look like welcoming people that you might not be as comfortable welcoming. And it could look like change, right? Just the dreaded word change. The painful process of change, of setting aside our preferences, uh, the ways it's always been done so that we can do effective ministry with the people God is bringing into our midst. I don't know what the wilderness period is going to look like for us, but I do know that if we're faithful to God's calling on our church, if we follow the Holy Spirit wherever it leads, there's going to be times when it leads us into the wilderness. But I also know that not a single one of us has to do it alone. We're in this journey together. And more than that, we're in this journey with God. And if we're faithful to that, if we follow the Spirit of God wherever it leads, there is nothing that we can't do together. Let's pray. God, we invite you to search our hearts. Reveal the inner workings. Humble us and give us the wisdom to accept these lessons from the wilderness. We pray for those who aren't in worship right now. Some who've been hurt by the church. Some whose hopes have been dashed by religion. We pray that you'd comfort them and that you'd find them in the wilderness. And God, we pray for discernment. We pray for the discernment to expose those who use religion for profit, to expose those whose promises are empty. And God, we pray for the grace to receive the spiritual refugees you lead into our midst and to point them back to you. But God, most of all, we pray for the courage to be faithful to the guidance of your spirit, even when it leads into the wilderness. Be with us in those times, Lord, and guide us through it. We ask for all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.